Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game around the love of the game. We are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky, and I love my job as a soccer broadcaster, and I love that you are listening to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Another fantastic show today. Five wonderful guests. Howie Putterman. He is the chair for Girls High School Advocacy for United Soccer Coaches. He actually won a sportsmanship award for his work as an athletic director and former girls high school coach. You'll love Howie Putterman's message about high school soccer fantastic he kicks it off Glenn Crooks, former head coach of the Rutgers women's soccer team. He coached Carly Lloyd all four years. Now he's a big-time commentator with New York City FC. He's got a great podcast. He breaks down all of the MLS playoffs. He gives his take on Christian Pulisic, tells everybody just pump the brakes, and he talks about Carly Lloyd still going strong at 37 years young. Paula Wilkins is the head coach of the Wisconsin Badgers. They're 9-2-1, the same year that we saw Rose Lavelle arguably be the best player in the world at the Women's World Cup. She's a former Badger. Paula Wilkins is on the show. And then two more members of our 30 under 30 class, Tom Poole, who's part of the University of Denver men's soccer team staff and a Colorado Rapids youth coach, and Marguerite Awazasa, star player at Santa Clara, now a coach on the Stanford women's soccer team. She is fantastic as well. We get it all started after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with TeamSnap. Go to TeamSnap.com to find out more. Now, once again, here's your host, Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky, and I'll tell you what, I'm excited about talking high school soccer right off the top. That's right, before we talk MLS or college soccer, we're talking high school soccer. And to do that, we're joined by Howie Putterman, who is the United Soccer Coaches High School Girls Advocacy National Chair. In addition, he is the current athletic director at Tuscarora High School in Maryland. This after spending 11 years as the high school girls coach at Linganore High School, also in that area. Howie Putterman, great to be with you, Howie. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for talking with me. Yeah, as you know, we've had several discussions on this podcast over the last three or four years about the importance of high school soccer. So before we even talk about the sportsmanship award that your school just received, and I'm excited to talk about that, just in general, and I put you ahead of our MLS conversation and our college conversation because as a, a parent who saw both my kids play high school soccer, I think it's really important, right? So just put your stamp on high school soccer. So I, I think that uh, I agree with you there. High school soccer is a, a very important part of the U.S. soccer landscape, um, and I think it's one that unfortunately often gets overlooked. Um, there are certain things that the high school game provides and offers that you just don't find in other parts of the U.S. soccer landscape. Um, 
years and years ago, I had the choice. I should say my wife gave me the choice of you got to give up one. You're coaching club, you're co- coaching high school, you got to choose one. And uh, I actually chose to continue with high school co- soccer and give up uh, some very talented club teams at that time. And it's because of the relationships that I was able to build with my high school teams. Um, you get the chance to watch uh, student athletes actually learn the true rhythm of the game, um, what, you know, closely mirrors the rhythm of, the, of, of a season in, at the college level. And no, this isn't professional soccer by any means, but the idea of having to not only deal with the technical and tactical sides of the game, but also how you're going to deal with practice when you've just failed a test in class or you have a big project due the next day. Um, And that's true at the high school level, the college level, or, you know, if you're playing uh, Sunday league ball, um, you know, where you're, you know, playing with a semi-pro team, but you've got a job um, that you have to pertain to. So I think high school soccer teaches a lot uh, in terms of how to manage the game manage your emotions, as well as the social aspects. Unlike a club, in high school you get to play for your colors and you get to play in front of your friends and in front of fans. And as good as your club team may be, you never get the chance to really play in front of anyone except parents. Um, So I think that adds another aspect to the game. And I just love it. There's passion in the game and uh, um, just a lot of opportunity for growth. What's your thoughts on kind of the hardline stance for the DA where you've got these great young players that you can tell they want to play high school? Not all of them. Some of them are just hardcore. I get it. They're going DA all the way. They want to play pro, maybe even right out of high school. But in general, if a kid wants to do both, do you think someday we'll find a way where they can make that work? I would love to see that. I think that I think the DA is absolutely necessary. Um, I'm not going to be the high school guy that says that you know we need to get rid of the DA. I mean there is a a definite place for it, um, and I think that it's going to serve U.S. soccer um, tremendously over the next 15 years and hopefully for longer. But um, I think it's become a little oversaturated. Um, and there are definitely kids that need to do that and that only, but there is a ton of young student athletes that need to play high school soccer as well, or as you said, want to play high school soccer. And I think the sooner we can get to a place where um, we can have conversations with these clubs and try and work out something that is in the best interest of the child, not of the coach or the club or the high school, but actually the best interest of the child, I think then we'll finally be reaching the full potential of both the DA and club soccer as well as what high school can offer. Um, I think we need to keep those those student or those player interests um, at the heart of all conversation. And uh, we're not quite there yet, but... Um, I know there are clubs in our local area, um, some nationally ranked clubs that can compete with any DA um, team out there that were formed specifically to allow kids to continue to play high school that wanted that option. So, um, you know, there are also leagues. Uh, In the Mid-Atlantic, we have the CCL, which works very, very closely with uh, high school soccer and encourages uh, high-level kids to play high school soccer. The opportunity is there, um, but the conversations, people need to be willing to sit down and have those conversations. And once we get to that point, I think we will be serving all of our kids the best way we can.
Well said, Howie, and we want to have a conversation with you about the Sportsmanship Award that your school just received and how you've created such an outstanding culture. So tell us about the Sportsmanship Award and tell us about creating that culture because without culture, you can't have sportsmanship and all the good things that go with it, right? Oh, absolutely. I uh, I, I, I steal from someone else, but I read um, – a book by uh, John Gordon and Mike Smith from the Atlanta Falcons, and uh, it was all about culture. And one of the quotes that always stuck out to me in that book was uh, that culture takes work. Um, you know, you get a culture. You know, the, one of the messages in, the, in that particular reading was that you build this culture and you've got this great culture with your team and then within your organization, and then you think it's going to, you know, carry itself. Um, but that's not how it works. And as soon as you stop working on your culture, it comes back to bite you. Um, so it's a very, very important part of my philosophy. Uh, I carried it every day when I was coaching, and I've tried in this new position to try and carry it to my new school. Um, and culture does breed um, positivity and sportsmanship. Um, I, I find that that uh, well, let me tell you about the Sportsmanship Award first, real quickly. Uh, this is a, a conference award. Uh, it's put out by our county, which encompasses most of our conference, um, and it is uh, voted on by principals as well as athletic directors across the conference for the team that um, has displayed sportsmanship above and beyond across every sport. So it's not just a football award or a soccer award or a tennis award, but it's uh, given to that school that has wins and losses aside, been able to display the the respect for the game and the right attitude across all the different competitions that we have. So I was very very proud that in uh, in uh, my first year as an athletic director, our school took home that award, and it was uh, um, I, I'm told it was a relatively easy decision. I don't know if they're ever easy, but uh, I was very very happy and proud of my student body and my coaches and my fans because all of them do go into it, that we were able to accept this award for them. So that's a little bit about the award. Um, in terms of the culture and, uh, and the, the positivity that we've built, I think it all stems back to uh, a philosophy that um, we're dealing with students, we're dealing with kids, we're dealing with children, and that children make mistakes. Um, they copy what they see on TV and sportsmanship is not real apparent on TV right now. They copy what they see in the professional leagues. And uh, we need to be willing and able to um, use those as teachable moments, to use mistakes and to use what we see in the media as teachable moments so that we can try and teach students, no matter what they play, how to respect the game, the me-first culture is everywhere, but if we actually try and teach sportsmanship skills, much like we teach a 4-2-3-1 or we teach how to hit a bended ball, whip ball or a bending a ball in, um, if you actually spend time on it, then you can actually improve the quote-unquote skills of your players, of your children, and uh, teach them how to be good sports. Um, it's something that's missing in today's society. We're here with Howie Putterman, and that culture just bleeds all the way through, right, from the players into the staff and the people around the team, right? Absolutely, and I think it actually starts with the coaches. Um, one of the things that I have worked very hard in the last year is to try and uh, 
make sure that my coaches understand, you know, sort of what I just said, that that not only should we model sportsmanship, but we actually have to teach it. Um, I, I, I did a little search online when I first got this job. It says, you know, how to teach how to be a good sport. And I found a lot of advice, but that's all I found was advice. Um, if you look it up online, you'll see these are the seven steps to being a good sport. Um, well, you can't teach a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old, oh, always be positive um, and just say it and expect them to be able to, to do it. Just like I can't tell someone how to shoot a free throw and expect them to be able to do it. Um, you need to actually practice it. So um, we tried to come up with ways that we could actually describe what sportsmanship looked like and actually teach it and practice it. Um, and then on top of that, model it ourselves. Um, we had meetings where we would discuss different situations um, that a player, a student athlete, or a coach might be put in and how would you react and have a discussion about what are the proper ways to react, what does is, what is an initial reaction look like, and now that you've thought about that initial reaction, what might you want to do? much like you would have if someone displayed poor sportsmanship and you had a meeting with them. We um, try and show examples of good sportsmanship. One of my favorite pictures is still the uh, the picture of the Japan locker room after the World Cup and the way that they cleaned that up and left a, a, a note um, after they lost in the World Cup. I think that's such a telling picture. Um, so I tend to show that at almost every meeting that I have. And we look for examples like that both out in the professional leagues, in the college game, as well as amongst ourselves to, you know, hey, good job at being a good sport. We also talked about um, goals. Like, you really can't achieve anything unless you have measurable goals. And so um, how do you define a goal of being a good sport? Well, how is it measured? We ended up looking at, you know, in soccer, you get yellow cards and red cards. We ended up looking at yellow cards and red cards and ejections. Um, it was when I was coaching. It was always our goal to receive the Sportsmanship and Ethics Award that United Soccer put out. And you know, I was proud to say the last four years I coached, we were at the gold level or above. Um, and that's all based on cards. And so, you know, I set the same goals for the athletic department here. And you know, very very happy with my coaches and my student athletes that we didn't have one ejection across any sport at all last year, and that was a big part of um, our receiving this particular award. And then uh, finally modeling it. Um, we had a day off last week, and uh, it's rare that you get a, a day off at all in the athletic department, but the first thing I did rather than take the full day off was jump on my Twitter account and make sure to thank officials for allowing us to play the game. Um, you know, we see a lot of abuse towards officials, and all my students see that, and a couple of them retweeted it. And so just modeling, the, you know, that respect for officials and respect for each other all the time, you know, during during contests, going up to the officials and having conversations with them before the game, not just yelling at them when we think they've made a bad call. Um, these are just some of the ways that we try and teach sportsmanship at Tuscarora. Based on all of that, and congratulations, because that is awesome. Everybody loves the, uh, yeah, of course, everybody loves a pat on the back, particularly for the right reasons and the right cause, and everything that uh, you just broke down there is all above the right way. It's outstanding. I feel like you are a natural choice to take on this advocacy chair position for 
high school girls. Talk about uh, how they reached out to you and how much you're enjoying that role. I'm loving this. It is it is just open doors for me that I never thought would be opened. Um, I was I was a member of United Soccer Coaches, and I was a semi-involved coach. I would go to conventions when the high school schedule and my budget and the distance to the particular convention would allow. So I was uh, I frequented, since I'm in Maryland, I frequented Baltimore and Philadelphia and didn't usually go anywhere else. Um, and uh, one year in Philadelphia, there was this uh, tiny little session, this tiny meeting on the side that just said, advocate for high school soccer. And I said, hey, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be more involved. And I went, and uh, I was, uh, you know, one of the guys in the room that knew nobody else there, um, and uh, fortunately, some some very I now know very influential people. You know, I got stuck in a group with them, and we discussed some things that we think high school could use in terms of advocacy. And then uh, um, one of our uh, current uh, vice presidents was actually uh, in charge of you know picking out the group that was going to be this inaugural high school advocacy team. Um, but Kevin Sims sort of, you know, chose me out of a hat or chose me for lack of better choices, I like to joke with him about. Um, but he chose me um, to be one of the members of the inaugural team. Um, and uh, I was excited about that, but, you know, who knew that in three months after he asked that, I was going to be flown down to Orlando, get a chance to meet Lisa Cole and the late, great Tony DeChico and, um, you know, Alison Weber and so many other influential um, coaches that are part of United Soccer. Um, Kevin eventually, uh, you know, we started that group. I met Greg Winkler and Rusty Oglesby. You know, I know you've spoken with Rusty before on this podcast. And uh, we just all formed a bond. We all wanted the same thing. We wanted what's best for high school soccer. Kevin was elected to the board, and um, nobody really knew who was going to take over for him. And uh, I just started doing some of the work that needed to be done in his absence and sure enough you know there was a big S for sucker on my on my forehead and all of a sudden I was the new chair um, and uh, it's been a wonderful ride since then you know we've done some fantastic things I've thoroughly enjoyed the doors that's opened the, the people I've gotten to meet and speak with and uh, the fact that you know I'm in a position now to help mentor new young coaches and make the game better for high school coaches here with Howie Putterman, the advocacy chair for high school girls soccer. Uh, if you could kind of big picture for us, tell us some of the things that uh, you are working on with Mr. Sims and the rest of the gang as it relates to high school soccer. What are some key initiatives you're focused on right now, Howie? There's basically four major initiatives that our group is currently working on, and I would be remiss if I didn't give credit um, where credit is due. The first one, which at this point I think is our biggest success, is our Coach of Significance Award, um, and that is the brainchild of Greg Winkler, who is my counterpart on the boys' side. But he, Rusty, and I have really been pushing this thing. Uh, it was his idea. The Coach of Significance Award is an award for high school coaches that has nothing to do with wins and losses. Rather, it has to do with um, your ability to give back to your community, to go above and beyond the game itself and, you know, become a part of the community and and part of making soccer significant for the people's lives that are playing on your team. Um, we choose one winner 
from each state each year. And uh, the first year, I think we had about 23 states that actually uh, put up nominations. And uh, this year, it was our third year, and we actually had 41 winners. So to us, that's a huge success. It's a great increase. Our goal is to get to 50. Um, but if you look down the, the list of those winners, there are some really awesome names. Very proud that one of the winners is actually from Tuscarora High School from uh, the inaugural year, but there's some fantastic uh, people on that list. So that's one of our biggest um, achievements. We also have uh, been working very, very closely with the National Federation of High Schools, the NFHS, um, and their rules committee. One of the things we want to do is try and make the high school game look the same across the country. Right now, the NFHS puts out rules, and then each state has the ability to sort of change those rules as they see fit. So you may have, like, yellow card accumulation in one state, but, you know, um, no penalties for accumulating 30 cards in another state. One state may have a penalty kick situation where the, all 11 players kick, and then, then you go uh, two miles down the road across the state line, and it's, uh, you know, what we would expect from FIFA, a five-person penalty kick shootout. Um, so we're trying to look um, at the rules and work with state associations to suggest rule changes that will make the game look the same across the country and also make the game look more like the FIFA laws. Um, third initiative that we're working on right now is sort of a coach's toolkit. Um, this can be best summarized as sort of resources that are specific to high school coaches. Um, you talk about one of the things that um, high school coaches have to deal with that club coaches don't necessarily have to deal with is we're not just the, the coach, but we're also the, the, the team manager. Um, many coaches are making their own schedules. Many coaches are um, having to have all those uh, fundraising meetings and the meetings with parents. Um, so how to successfully navigate all that, especially for a new coach, how to promote your team to the newspaper who doesn't want to write about, you know, maybe doesn't want to write about soccer, just wants to write about, you know, basketball or football. Um, and then, of course, dealing with parents. Um, new coaches can always use help in that, especially our young new coaches um, who, you know, we don't want them to, to go into those conversations without having um, some knowledge about how to deal with parents that may actually be older than them. And the fourth and final initiative for us is education. We're working really hard to try and um, get high school groups to host coaching education. Um, as a high school coach, I always found that um, even the United Soccer Coaches uh, courses were too far away or too expensive. And so I was doing all the smaller courses and special topics, diplomas, but to be able to shell out the almost $1,500 it's going to cost to travel somewhere and take a course and take a week off from work was tough. So, you know, we've been pushing out, you know, scholarships and grants, and we've been uh, trying to get high school coaches to host courses in their area so that United Soccer would come to them rather than having to travel to United Soccer. So those have been the four biggest things that we've been working on lately. That's a lot, and that sounds like a lot of productive qualities that uh, you guys are moving the game forward. I want to go back to your comment um, that uh, you made because I thought it was great when you said, hey, my wife made me make a choice, which is fair <laughs> because, you know, uh, when mom is happy, right, everybody's happy, and you feel like um, perhaps a lot of people would have said, hey, youth soccer is where it's at, um, not high school. Any regrets about your decision or all joy? 
Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed that decision. Um, it was uh, it was a tough one because, like I said, I had a pretty talented team. But when I really sat down to think about it, I didn't even need to make the, the pro and con list. I stopped and I thought and I said, you know what, I'm a teacher, I'm an educator. This is what I love. This is what I want to do. Um, my boy is six now, and he's just starting to get into youth soccer. And, uh, you know, so, and I know the coaches in the club very, very well. We have a great relationship, and they've contacted me about it. And I can see myself going back to club one day. But right now, I, I'm very, very happy with where I, with where I landed and what I did. I had some, uh, some wonderful friendships, some wonderful relationships that I built with my student athletes. Um, and of course, everything that it's done on this side at high school soccer has just opened doors for me left and right. So I don't regret it at all, and I wouldn't second guess that decision if I had to make it again today. Pretty phenomenal accomplishment winning this sportsmanship award with your high school. When you think back about um, your time with United Soccer Coaches, you dropped some great names there, including Mr. Sims and, and the rest of the gang that help out with high school soccer. But what's been your best memory so far just in the game, whether with United Soccer Coaches or at your high school that you were for 11 years? What's been your best overall number one moment in the game? I probably have two. I probably have two. Um, one of them, and this is, it's cliche, um, but I had a, a team, I had a very, very talented high school soccer team. There's no doubt. Um, you know, I was very, very lucky with, uh, with the youth that I was working with. And, uh, we kept knocking on the, on the door, um, but couldn't quite win our state championship. And then, uh, we lost a ton of talent, a ton and ton of talent. But the group that came back that, was overlooked and wasn't supposed to be near as talented as that group as the group that went on to finally break through and win states. Um, and it's not actually that particular memory. Um, the memory that sits with me is, I think, three months later when we went down to the state capitol to accept our, you know, proclamation from the, the General Assembly. You know, it was a nice day and, you know, it was cool and, you know, fun ceremony. We got to sit in on the Maryland version of the, of Congress and, and, you know, they brought us up on, you know, onto the, the, the Senate floor, et cetera. Um, but to me, it was afterwards. We were there in Annapolis, Maryland, which is the state capital, and it's uh, the government is right near uh, the Naval Academy and the waterfront, and there's tons of restaurants and shopping. And so rather than go back to school, we took the day to go have lunch. And I said, all right, you, you, know, you ladies have an hour and a half um, for lunch. Let's just meet on the dock down there you know, at such and such a time. And we all separated into about, I think, seven different groups that went our merry way to go have our lunch. And I looked up about ten minutes later at a particular restaurant that I was interested in eating at, and the whole team was there. We all ended up together outside the restaurant at the same place. They wanted to be together. They wanted to be with each other. To me, that's one of my favorite memories of any team, of anything, Thing that I've ever done was just looking up and feeling the, the, the togetherness, the oneness of this particular team with everything they had been through. I thought it was just appropriate that we ended up at the same place. The other one is uh, uh, wonderfully, wonderfully cliche, but it was, um, and I won't name names, but it was going to one of my ex-players' weddings. And when she saw me and came running over and introduced me to her 
new husband and just started crying and thanked me. Um, you, you, you can't get that. Um, and you can never, ever forget it because it's why we play the game. It's why we coach the game. So those two are the two that sit with me. I love those answers. Howie, you're a bit of a romantic. I like that, my um, <laughs> Don't tell my <laughs> that's wife. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think she knows, let me tell you. I, I well bet she done. Does, and, and thanks for all you're doing for the high school game. As I told you earlier, I'm a huge fan and appreciate all you're doing, Howie. Thanks so much for kicking off our show today. Well, thank you, and Dean. Thanks for promoting our game. We love when people do that for us. All right, Howie Potterman, great start to the show. We'll back. Registration is now open for the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. Make your plans to join us January 15th through the 19th for five days of coaching education, networking, meal and social functions, award presentations, and more. Register before December 11th to secure the best rate. Visit unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org to learn more. The United Soccer Coaches Convention, your event for all things coaching. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Great show today. Even better now that we're joined by Glenn Crooks, former head coach of the Rutgers women's soccer team. Yes, he's the man responsible for Carly Lloyd. We'll get more into that in a little (laughs) bit. But he's also the great host of On Frame, the great podcast in conjunction with Pro Soccer USA where you can find his writing work, which is very, very good. Always been a great writer. And he's a commentator for radio for New York City FC of Major League Soccer. So he's here to talk Major League Soccer, talk Kristen Pulisic, and, of course, talk Carly Lloyd. Glenn, thanks for being with me. Thanks, Dean. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, so here we go, MLS playoffs, and I kind of want to just push and play with Glenn Crooks and kind of have you break down the playoff matches with a quick comment on each matchup, and then maybe when you're done, kind of, get you to predict who you think is going to come out of the East and come out of the West. So I'm going to just sit back and enjoy your wisdom if that's okay. That's fine. And if I don't pick uh, New York City FC coming out of the East, I'm going to get a lot of flack from uh, the <laughs> players and the coaching staff there. But uh, but uh, legitimately, they have, uh, they've have they been the top team in the East. Uh, they uh, well deserve the, uh, the clinching the, the top seed in the Eastern Conference. Uh, and they did that... Uh, before decision day and you know so it's really been um, kind of a fascinating look at the head coach Domi Terran who sat next to Pep Guardiola for 11 years was his lieutenant uh, at uh, first Barcelona then Bayern Munich and and then Manchester City so the experience that this guy has had uh, along with his staff who who all have had uh, had some sort of experience on either the academy level or the first team level at Barcelona I mean, it's really, um, it's really quite a story because there was a struggle and there was a moment where it seemed like Domi might be in a, in a bit of a, a difficulty six games into this 2019 season, Dean, and New York City hadn't even won a game. But they are now uh, in position to just sit and wait, and the, first, the, the, the match they're really focused on in one of the six opening round games is uh, Toronto playing host to D.C. United. And... Uh, I think this game hinges on, on one player, Dean. I, I really do, Josie Altador. And uh, you may have heard he's uh, he was called into the national team by uh, Greg Berhalter for these National League games uh, or Nations League games. So he's out. He, he, he suffered an injury in, in, on decision day. Uh, they're not really uh, talking about to what extent that injury is. But if he's unavailable for that game, which is going to be played on October the 19th, so it's a week from this Saturday, so there's time to recover, but again, we don't know the extent, we don't know the exact nature of the injury, but without him, 
Uh, I, you know, I think it's it's very difficult for Toronto. He's he plays as big a role with Toronto in their success as he does to me with the U.S. men's national team. So that's something to look closely at with uh, with that game for sure. Atlanta, same thing. Uh, they're at home against New England. This is interesting because these two teams just met in the regular season finale, and they're going to play again uh, in the opening round of the playoffs. Atlanta's the defending MLS Cup champions. Uh, they struggled at times with the new coach Frank DeBoer, but uh, they're playing very well here toward the uh, the end of the season. And then New England's a huge story. You know, Bruce Arena uh, when he came on board, they were two eight and two. Uh, Brad Friedel got fired, and I think deservedly so. It just wasn't happening. And Arena came in, and they've lost only two games since uh, since he's uh, taken over. A lot of draws, uh, but enough wins and draws to uh, to finish seventh, the final playoff position, and that's why they're uh, going against the, the two-seed Atlanta. But they've got to do it at Mercedes-Benz. There'll be 70,000 there. Incredible atmosphere, and Atlanta has Joseph Martinez back. Yeah, he suffered an injury which looked like it was it might be season ending. Uh, and but this this guy is uh, if there ever were a Superman in, in MLS, you might talk about Zlatan Ibrahimovic, but I say Joseph Martinez because this guy this guy recovered so quickly from look like, what, what looked like a serious knee injury, and uh, with a lot of pain. And uh, he had a golden assist uh, on decision day as Atlanta beat New England 3-1. So that's a pretty intriguing matchup. Uh, Bruce Arena will have time to organize that uh, against Frank DeBoer. I really like that. That, to me, is uh, that's the game to, to really focus on, even though it's a 2-7 game. Another uh, battle that's going to be you know, pretty intriguing is at Talon Energy Stadium in Philadelphia. Uh, the Union, and they broke all kinds of team records this year, points, uh, you know, goals scored. I mean, they, they just had a sensational year. They were in first place a lot of the season, ended up finishing third in the East behind New York City and Atlanta. They're going to host the New York Red Bulls. Now, people probably already forget the Red Bulls last year broke the MLS record for points in a single season, and then they had that eclipse this year by LAFC over in the West, and the Red Bulls coming off a, a, a season where they won the Supporters' Shield have, have really had some issues uh, they're, uh, they're playoff bound. Uh, Bradley Wright Phillips, who has been their talisman for, for so long now, and has been such a, a, an integral part of, of what they do and, and their success, he's now a reserve. Apparently he's just, you know, and, and Dean, I ha- this is one I haven't looked at close enough. I, I would, to me, uh, from the outside looking in, it's hard to believe that Bradley Wright Phillips might not start this game against Philadelphia, but apparently that's the way it's going to be. He's now yeah, a reserve. Crazy. Yeah, it, it really it really seems uh, nutty, but you know we're not there every day. Chris Armas, I, I, I find him to be, uh, you know, really open and 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 a, and a very good coach. You know what I like most about Armas, Dean? You'll like this. How okay. about this? So he, uh, great national team player. I, I I remember him well as an you know I loved him. He's, he was gritty, but he was a good player. I mean, he was like tough in the midfield. You know, he's great. And yeah, but his coaching experience. He joined Jesse Marsh in 2015 with the Red Bulls as an assistant. You know where he coached the previous three years? Tell me. Adelphi University, the women's team at Adelphi University, which was his alma mater. How cool is that? He went from coaching women to coaching the MLS. So you know why I like that, because that's a good story. That's a good story. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's Armas. And then the other matchups, Minnesota hosting the LA Galaxy 
you know, Minnesota in just their third year, they get to the postseason, they're, they're having a fantastic year. And the LA Galaxy, they're, they're, they're just impossible to figure out. But they always draw the biggest crowds on the road because they've got Zlatan Ibrahimovic. So that one is hard to diagnose. It's in Minnesota. The Galaxy have been very leaky on the defensive side. So uh, that, that's an interesting one, too. I mean, they, all these games have a bit of intrigue. Real Salt Lake is at home to Portland. Now, Portland... They opened the season, I think it was their first 11 or 12 games on the road because they were refurbishing Portland. They were adding seats uh, at uh, Providence Park, their home. So they had all these games stacked up at home down the stretch of the season, which you would think would be an advantage. I think I I I have this right. I don't have it in front of me, but I believe they were 4-4-2 in their final 10 home games at Providence Park, which is really poor. And they just squeezed into the playoffs. And so now, because of their poor performance at home, where they thought maybe, you know, down the stretch we're going to really get this done, now they got to go to Rio Tinto Stadium, which is a tough place to play, where the, the home of RSL. And RSL's, you know, all the Mike Pecky stuff, he gets fired after, uh, uh, you know, using the P word with the referee after a – what was that? That was a uh, – Gosh, I can't remember the match now, um, so it, it, it escapes me. But it really was uh, it was poor on, on Pecky's part. He's suing the uh, the club. Mike Pecky is for uh, because uh, he, he thinks he's got the he's got the literature which would state that the, the team was going to keep him on. Uh, their president has since uh, uh, stepped aside. All this and Freddy Juarez, who took over for Pecky. Has, has kept this thing together, and uh, RSL, uh, they love Freddie Juarez. I, I've talked to Freddie a couple of times on interviews. He's a really good guy. Uh, he, he's got a great soccer brain, and he's got a great personality. You know, and while I, I think, uh, you know, I'm pretty certain the team really liked Pecky because he was such, you know, he's one of these guys that you want to play for. Uh, they love Freddie Juarez. So he's got him a, a home playoff game after all these things happened with Pecky and the owner and the. All kinds of yeah. stuff happened there, so he's doing great. Seattle's at home to FC Dallas, and that is all the games. And I, that's the one game I don't if, – if there's any one of those six games where I haven't really studied it too thoroughly, that's one. So I'm not going to say much more about that except Seattle's home, uh, which uh, I think uh, is, is not going to be good news for FC Dallas. Phenomenal breakdown. We're here with Glenn Crooks. And, uh, Glenn, go ahead, and I know you've got to have uh, the tip of the hat to NYCFC, but who's going to come out of the East and who's going to come out of the West? Well, I, I'd i be somewhat surprised, although these knockout games are scary. You know how they, the, the MLS has changed the format. They went from uh, two legs in the Eastern Conference semis, in the conference semifinals and the conference finals. Uh, instead of two legs and then the aggregate score, it's a single elimination. And part of the reason for doing that was to try to get the season ended earlier so that there wasn't this huge uh, break in between what I believe was the conference final and the final because of the international break that's coming up. We're, we're in the midst of a break now, and then there's another one uh, right after what is now the MLS Cup final date, November the 10th. So in order to avoid that, they went to single elimination, started the season a week earlier. And uh, But, yeah, you know, the game, you've done enough games, uh, Dean, where, you know, the the best team doesn't always win because, you know, it could be a referee's call. It could be a, it could be anything. It could be anything that, that 
can occur. So a, a one-game knockout, uh, you know, that's where that's the only thing I would say that would would take away from what I think would be and should be the final, and that's New York City FC at LAFC. And that would be uh, that'd be crazy out there at the Bank of California Stadium because it's nuts. I mean, that is that's one of you know you talk about Portland and, and, and Seattle and, and Atlanta, uh, but that that scene there is twenty thousand strong and they are nuts. They've got an their ultras, their supporters are are uh, are rather crazy and loud and uh, pretty intimidating because the way that stadium is built, being the goalkeepers are 12 feet from the first guy screaming in their ear. I mean, it is a wow. tight scene there. So I'm kind of hoping for that. And then the, the, the other fun thing that could happen, which is uh, kicking a lot of people off, is that if LAFC gets upset and New York City FC advances in the east, the, uh, the final could uh, very well be played at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> uh, and there, there's been a, lot of, uh, been a lot of comments about the... Yankee Stadium uh, soccer field uh, over the years, and uh, I think uh, MLS would really, really have a difficult time with that one. I, I don't know if they have the power to move it out of there. I don't know what they would do, but um, to me, it's like if you deserve to be playing the MLS Cup final at home, then you got to play it on your home site. You know, I guess too bad if it looks bad, you know, on TV. You know, it's, it's got a, it's, that doesn't have a good look on TV, Yankee Stadium. It, it just doesn't. Not for fun. Here with Glenn. No, indeed. Here with Glenn Crooks breaking down all the MLS playoffs. I told you he was plug-and-play. He was better than plug-and-play. Outstanding. And as I mentioned, Glenn, as we started, I also wanted to get your take on Christian Pulisic and what's going on with him. So what is going on with him, and what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I, I think everybody's got to calm down. I, I, I truly believe that because I look at – and look, this is – you might – Laugh at me and say, you know, this is what I'm about to say. You can't say this is a comparable, you know, uh, it, it, you can't look at these two things. There's a guy in New York City FC, and there's many more examples about young players and, and, and giving them a chance. Uh, his name's Tati Casianos. He's Argentinian. Uh, he was 19 last year, his first year with New York City, and now he's 20. And to watch this kid grow and develop and get used to uh, the environment in MLS, he was just called up to the uh, Argentinian U23s, which was a huge statement for MLS, that a guy is having great success this year. He's had uh, 11 goals, 7 assists, coming off a 1-goal, 1-assist uh, season a year ago. And it's just like his transformation as a player it had to do with confidence. It had to do with uh, being patient, but he had a great attitude. And the biggest thing for Christian Pulisic is how he handles this individually. Because I think ultimately he's going to make it happen. And, and I, I just think there has to be a certain level of patience. He's got some very good players ahead of him at Chelsea right now. Um, does, it, um, does it harm what he's uh, trying to accomplish with the U.S. men's national team because he's not playing as much? Well, that's not a good situation. I mean, you need games. You need games. So maybe he gets loaned out eventually. Or maybe he breaks in eventually. His most recent game was successful. When I saw him play early, I didn't see the most recent game. But uh, he he assisted on one of the goals. But uh, I saw him in the early portion of the season. I, I thought he looked fine, and I think he can deal with the the pace and physical nature of the EPL. But that's the biggest thing you have to get used to. That league is like no other in terms of the 
the physical nature of the sport, the ball has to move so quickly. You got to give the guy uh, some time. He's got to get some games, and that's what Lampard has to figure out. I mean, if he doesn't get him on the pitch, it's going to be pretty difficult for him to get used to what is a higher tempo of soccer. But my feeling is is that uh, it'll work for him eventually, and uh, I think people need to calm down. All right, we'll continue to track that and appreciate your opinion on that. I think you're right. Finally, Glenn, as I told you, I've got the North Carolina Courage against Sky Blue FC on Saturday, and I'm most excited about seeing Carly Lloyd. And here's why. I mean, I've seen her before, and it's been awesome, but I really feel like she has upped her game at 37 years old, and she's been a stalwart in the – I realize they're just friendlies and that type of thing, but she's been solid for Sky Blue – she said she wants to do another Olympics and another World Cup, and I say, why not? What do you think, Glenn? Yeah, why not? I, I don't. Uh, hey, you know, I've known Carly a long time and coached her for four years. I don't. Uh, I don't ever question Carly <laughs> when it comes to the game and, and, and wh- how she feels about what she can make happen. I talked to her right before uh, the World Cup for a long time. We had a good twenty-minute conversation, and you know. <laughs> And when you're there with somebody, you're looking them in the eye, the body language and everything. I mean, she she said, I am a better player now than I was four years ago. I'm just not getting the chance. And I think as long as she's physically capable, and she'll admit she's not as – she's she's a loss a little in terms of pace. I don't think there's any question about that. But as she put it, you know, she goes, I make up for that with my soccer brain and uh, my ability to move the ball. And – uh you know, so as long as she's physically fit, and that's the thing she works on, you know, as much as anything, um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count her out for the Olympics or the next World Cup. But I think it's it, a lot of it's going to have to do with who gets named the coach, and uh, you know, there'll be a sit down, and uh, you just have to hope that the coach is, uh, you know, honest. Um, I think uh, Carly's relationship with Jill Ellis was a little up and down because I don't know if she always knew where she stood with Jill, uh, other than the fact that. She wasn't a starter any longer, but as that wore on at the World Cup, I think Carly really she always accepted her role and was, you know, a good captain. But she um, she was um, desperate to play. Uh, felt um, yeah, I, I think in a way neglected, um, but obviously ecstatic for her team, ecstatic for the fact that she's involved in another World Cup championship. But Carly, when she's not playing, uh, she's not fun to be around. You know. It's, <laughs> But she was a good teammate at the same time, and uh, and she feels strongly about what she still has to offer. Now, if 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 she moves into the NFL, I guess uh, her Sky Blue career is over. I talked to the Sky Blue general manager, Elise LaHue, about that. I said, "Are you going to lose Carly to the NFL?" And she just said, "Look, yeah, if if, if that's her, if that's her calling, then you know that's her calling. Uh, I just I don't think that's. Uh, oh, she's serious about it, but I." You know, here's here's what I saw the other day. I, I don't know what game it was, and I don't watch a lot of NFL, but there was somebody. It was a kickoff, and somebody broke through. Like the you know, had the the guy who received it just broke through everybody, and the only person left was was the kicker. And this guy's roaring towards the end, and the kicker just he barreled into him and knocked him out of bounds and saved the touchdown. And I, at that moment, I just said, "Oh my God." If that's Carly, she's dead. So yeah. I just don't think that's going to happen. You are truly plug-and-play and a delight to have on the podcast. You do a great job with your podcast. Glenn Crooks, everybody, thanks so much for being with me, Glenn, and all the best uh, as you work your way through the playoffs.
Thank you, Dean, and uh, you as well. Good to chat, man. Coming up next, Paula Wilkins, the head coach of the Wisconsin Badgers. They're 9-2-1, undefeated in Big Ten play. Their two losses are to UCLA and Florida State by one single goal. The Badgers are legit. Paula Wilkins coach Rose Lavelle, she's legit. We'll talk Rose Lavelle. We'll talk Badger women's soccer. This is Dean Linky with a special message from the United Soccer Coaches Foundation. The United Soccer Coaches Foundation has opened up applications for their annual grants and scholarships. Grants and scholarships are available for convention registrations, advanced education diplomas, or for the opportunity to host a United Soccer Coaches educational course at your facility for your coaches and your community. To apply or to find out more, please visit unitedsoccercoaches.org slash donate or contact Development Officer Amanda Mitchell. The United Soccer Coaches Foundation wishes everyone luck with their application. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. As I just told you, the Wisconsin Badgers women's soccer team is legit. Paula Wilkins is legit. She coached Rose Lavelle. Doesn't get any more legit than that. And Wisconsin is 9-2-1. Their only two losses are to UCLA in Florida State by one single goal. They're 5-0 and to start the Big Ten season. And Paula Wilkins joins me now in her 13th season at Wisconsin. Paula, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Uh, we're definitely going to get to Rose Lavelle. But right now, I mean, Paula, you had the vision. This is your team. I mean, you set it up. You played youngsters the last couple years. And despite a devastating injury to one of your stars, Victoria Pickett, your team is coming together, 9-2-1. and one. Just talk about how you kind of set this team up. You played youngsters. You took a couple lumps, not that many because you always win anyway, Paula, but you took a few lumps to get to this point. Talk about getting to this point because it's pretty darn exciting. You know, well, I think uh, one thing was really important, I think, when we had the injury to Victoria, um, a lot of the younger players would have had some experience playing Stanford last year in the Sweet 16 um, they stepped up their level. They came in a fitter, um, and they completely buy into the system that we're, we're um, you know, implementing for them. And a couple players had new roles, um, but what's the most amazing thing is that the discipline they have in the system um, has been the best that we've had in several years, and obviously that's resulted in um, some wins along the way and you know, some good performances against very good teams in the country. So part of that is Big Ten play, right? So one of the things you wanted to do and you've always done is, you know, you play Florida State, you play UCLA. You do it for a reason, right, to get ready for a very competitive Big Ten season. Yeah, I think that every time we go into those games, especially early in the season, uh, we feel that they're going to expose our weaknesses, and that's really important. And so we talk about the, the season being a process and that, you know, every game that we play in, even, you know, our last one, we learn from and that we can't get worried about wins and losses, that we have to worry about improvement as much as we can. Playing Florida State on the second day, on a Sunday, um, in heat was going to be important because we wanted to be able to see if we could sit in, if we could control space, um, if we could do those different types of things. Um, and how our system would be exposed in, against the 4-3-3 was movement that was going to be quite incredible. And Florida State was able to do that. And, and we got some confidence because, you know, we gave up a goal, um, a very good goal, probably in the, in the second over, first overtime. Um, and so that built some confidence. And then when we went to play UCLA, at UCLA again, um, you know, their movement, playing a player like Jesse Fleming and, and Ashley Sanchez, you know, that if we can keep them to one, and at, at halftime, 
actually out shooting them. And so this time instead of sitting in, you know, coming and pressing them a little bit uh, was quite exciting. I think that game helped us catapult into the, the Big Ten and playing very good teams, but knowing that we played some of the best in the country. Well, and it's not going to get any easier. How is the health of the team right now? We know about Pickett, but, you know, there's going to be some bumps and bruises and everything. Knock on wood, everything going okay health-wise? We're we're okay. I think one of our biggest focuses is making sure we maintain, um, you know, the health based on the the amount of ground these guys are covering. You know, one thing I love about my team is that they they came in with knowing that Victoria was going to be out for the season. Uh, Their fitness level coming in was Amazing. In fact, what they were doing at the beginning of the season was what they were doing mid-season last year. And so just looking at the volume that they're covering and making sure that we, we recover well on off days um, is going to be important. But right now, knock on wood, our health is, is, is as good as it can be. What would it mean to go, and I know you're not going to like this question, but what would it mean to go 11-0 and in the Big Ten? Um, we had this conversation with my team, actually, the other day, and, and I said, I, I don't know the exact stats, but I believe there's only one team in the history ever to do that. And I said, so let's not, let's not put that on us. And, and, you know, it's the usual coach speak that I'm going to talk about is that one game at a time. And we talked about, you know, we had a, a couple days ago we had a, a rough practice, and I said, you know, for, for missing the opportunity to get better every time, then we've missed it. And so trying to relieve the pressure off of them a lot about talking about bigger picture by saying just one game at a time. The most important game for us is our next one against Minnesota, um, and that's the only one that we can control. And so we want to focus on that. And even talking from half to half and minute to minute, you know, a lot of our games in the Big Ten came down to moments. And State's a good team. Michigan's a good team. Rutgers is a good team. Maryland's a good team. They're all good teams, and we just talk about controlling those moments and that we can't worry about controlling the moment against Nebraska two games from now or three games from now. So um, it's a trap question for me, and we have completely steered ourselves away from that and just talked about being in the moment, and the team has done well. And that was from the beginning of the season, um, you know, getting better from the first game against UCF to Florida State. So um, we're going to continue that mantra as we go along here. And that no losses, every, even a loss is going to teach us something. It doesn't hurt that you've not been allowing any goals, three straight shutouts in a row. What's been going on defensively that's been just so rock solid? I think it's the, the discipline of the team. Uh, and everything, when they think about not giving up goals, you think about your goalkeeper, which Jordan Bloom is doing a great job, or you think about your back four. Um, I think that's part of it. I think the other part is if people watch us and what the work rate of our forwards are. Um, they're fantastic. I even showed, you know, one of the reasons why we were able to score in Michigan was one of our forwards came back to double team. Um, and they're willing to work across the field and get hard across the field. Our freshman, Emma Jazzconnect, is so disciplined in what she's doing and what she's trying to do. And it's not always perfect, but her effort is right. So when I'm looking at the team, and I keep emphasizing this with them, is that it's really not just a back four or a goalkeeper or anything like that. It's all of them combining to do it well. And and I tell them all the time, the only way that we're going to keep winning is if that discipline is right and that their effort is right. So it's been a focus for us to, to keep talking about how good that is, but also to not take any game where we take it for granted. The timing of this interview, the timing of this season, I'm so excited about because here's the deal, folks listening in. Paula Wilkins is definitely one of the most accomplished women's college soccer head coaches in the country. Pair of college cup semifinals, 11 NCAA tournament bursts. She's also in the top three in coaching wins, second all-time in Big Ten history with seven Big Ten titles. 
But you think about the way this team sets up, ironically, the same year where we already knew Rose Lavelle was incredible. But what she did at the World Cup, for me, and I've said it on the podcast, for me, she was the very best player. I also loved uh, right back for England, but uh, I felt like Rose Lavelle was the best player in the World Cup. So, you know, you heard that same scoreboard, right? <laughs> you can always point to the scoreboard now with Rose Lavelle because it's just <laughs> the beginning of somebody that we might see for two or three more World Cups. So putting all that together with your great season and what Rose Lavelle has done, kind of put into words what she's meant to you in the program and how the timing of, of this year as well kind of fits perfectly, right? Well, I've, I've never really thought about it until this moment, but I guess you're right, and you know, it's interesting when you talk about Rose and the impact she's had here at Wisconsin. Um, I always say that, the, that there are recruits that came that wanted to play with Rose, but I don't think they realized that she was going to graduate. And so um, she got players to look here, to be attracted here. But what I think she meant to the program was this, is that even the players who are seniors now had to train against her every day in training. And I always say that that helps build the program in general, that it's Every day in training, you're playing against Rose Lavelle, who now is, as many will say, and I agree with, is probably one of the best in the world. You either get better or you cry yourself to sleep every night. Now, I'm pretty sure there's some players who have been crying themselves to sleep because they got megged several times in practice. But, um, you know, she raised the standard of practice. She raises the level so that every day in practice, you're going to have to open up faster. You're going to have to um, tackle better. You're going to have to move better to deal with her. And that raised the whole level. So now that level of training has been higher. And without her, and, and, and the likes of Victoria Pickett and some other players who've kind of raised that level just from a technical standpoint, from a standard fitness standard um, point, that she rose the whole level to be able to help create this um, that we have right now. And, um, you know, she might not have seen it all result in her time period, um, but she surely has had an impact um, in some of our success this year. And, you know, for me personally, uh, you know, Rose has been one of those players that, um, you know, would sit in your office for two hours and you're, you're like, I- I'm watching film or I'm or I'm doing some work. Like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm just good to sit here. And, you know, just it was a great person. And she's one of those players that no matter what, she knows your birthday. She knows something about you. She cares about you as a person. And sometimes when players are so good and so they have this big ego. And Rose is completely different. She would be so humble to the players on the team. And, you know, at one point in this season we were talking about, you know, people kind of getting on each other about not being good enough. And I said, you know, Roosevelt never complained about one person. And she only thought, how can I make them better? And right there that just sets the standard for the program also. Like, And then when I said it, you could see a bunch of kids, like, kind of drop their heads going, like, well, if Rose couldn't complain about somebody, how can I? And, again, it just – she helped to build a culture of the program that was maybe not her standing up in front of everyone complaining or saying something or saying this big epiphany, but just her energy and how she went about everything every single day was has left a, a mark here on the program. Well, to your credit, um, from the minute she arrived in Madison, you were up front. I've had the great honor of you know being on the Big Ten Network for all 13 years and covering several of your games. But from the very minute you said, Dean, this is a special player, but did you know she had special, like, best-in-the-world capabilities? Um, as you know, Dean, I'm always honest about stuff. I, I would be lying if I said yes, um, because I, you would see flashes and moments of it. And the biggest criticism 
of Rose mostly was if she was going to be effective enough. And, you know, even in ours, I think her highest season of goal scoring was six for us. And so I always told Rose that the, the one person that was going to stand in her way was herself. And I think a maturity level, she got it when she left, that she um, was surrounded probably with better players that would help her with, with opening stuff up to allow her skills to do that. I always joke when I say with her that, you know, it was hard for her to find the ball sometimes at Wisconsin, so she had to work so hard to find it that it was easy for her at the international stage. But um, I, I just it, it, I just think that you could see flashes of it. You just didn't know if it was going to be consistent enough, and for her credit, she figured it out. At the end of her senior year, she had kind of let go of all the pressures of having this expectation on her, and she began to play, and you could see that it was coming out at that point. At that point. Have you seen her change at all after all of this and all of the attention and accolades? Um, absolutely not. It's it's pretty funny that right after the World Cup, I'm talking like a couple hours afterwards, she called us, and I said, is this going to change you? And she said, I don't know. And it hasn't. <laughs> not, not one bit. Um, you know, she's if you get to know her, She's a great personality. Like I said, she cares about all the people, but she's very introverted. She's very shy. And I said, well, are you going to go do all these big things? And she's like, I'd like to stay at home and play with my dog and watch TV. And, I, I you know, I said, are you going to, like, go buy big big things? And she's like, no. And she's really stayed very humble and very herself. We, we got to see her, luckily, when we played Maryland um and got to spend a couple hours with her and she's just the same old rose that it was before and she actually said that she can sometimes she doesn't think it even happened um but uh I'm happy for her and she's just the same quirky kid and I'm glad she didn't change yeah, I'm so glad to get an inside look at uh Rose Lavelle like only you can have I appreciate you sharing that with us and Paula why we're at it why don't you share why you decided on Madison and clearly you've been there 13 years you're loving it why Madison why the Badgers um well for me it was uh I had had a lot of success at Penn State and they supported me very well there and it was incredible to um build the program with Coach Farmer and then be able to take the program over it I think it's always challenging for any coach to go from assistant coach to head coach and uh, I thought there was a lot of pressure, especially since I was only 27, 28 years old at the time. Um, and we had built something absolutely great there. And, you know, at that time I felt like I personally, I love State College, but I wanted a bigger city. I love Madison. Many people can't find it on a map. Um, but every time we came here to play Madison, my players would always be like, it's the greatest city ever. And you'd read a lot of things about it. And, so when the job came open, I said, oh, this is kind of interesting. And I met with Coach Alvarez, who was the AD at the time, or still at the time, AD still. And I said, listen, I don't know if I can take a good team. Actually, I know I can take a good team and make it good, but I don't know if I can take a bad team and make it better. Because at that time, they were about, Wisconsin was last in the Big Ten, and obviously Penn State was first in the Big Ten. And he said, won't this, won't this prove to you if you're a really good coach or not? And I kind of sat for a while, and I thought, all right, all right, see if I can change a culture around. I want to see if I can do this to kind of just broaden myself as a coach. And um, I took that jump. I love the school. I love the area. I love everywhere. And if we can get anyone on campus, they fall in love with it, but they've got to find it on the map first. And they always think that it's like cows and cornfields, but it's really not. And uh, I won't lie, the first couple of years uh, it was challenging because I tried to do things I did at Penn State the same here, and it was a different player, a different 
different environment, um, and it really made me become a better coach. It made me better tactically um, to figure different things out. It made me uh, better on developing players and building relationships and building a culture. I don't think I would have – I did it before Penn State kind of by accident, and here I actually had to put thought into it. And so um, I'm really excited with, with where this program is. A lot of players at the very beginning had to trust me and be willing to go through some bumps and bruises to get this where it is. Um, and it, obviously it's not exactly where we want to be finally, um, but I think for me personally as a coach, the journey has been incredible, just learning different things and, and how to approach things differently. And, and like I said, if I would have known the stuff now that I knew back then, obviously I was younger, I probably would have been, I probably would have won at least one national championship at Penn State. So um, I'm glad that I've become a better coach because of it. I love your candor on that answer, and um, I got to admit, everybody loves a pat in the back, and, and at the end of the day, like, you know, everybody loves, uh, and they're concerned about themselves, so I got I to tell you, one of my favorite moments as a broadcaster, in all honesty, is at a Big Ten tournament when we finally get to, you know, see you guys up close and personal, and I went out to practice, and I clearly must have been looking really ragged, because then when I showed up uh, in my suit, you came up to me and said, wow, Dean, you actually clean up really well. And, like, <laughs> that has been in my mind forever, Paul. I so appreciated that comment, especially from you. Um, so I just wanted to share that with you because that brings a big smile to my face. Every time I know I've got one of those Wisconsin games, I always say, hey, Paul told me I look, was looking good, you know, so I'll take that for sure. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Sometimes my filter and stuff is not appropriate, but um, I always think <laughs> what you see with me is what you get. So um, I won't lie about that. And people who know me know me well. I, I hope love that part of me. So. Uh, absolutely, totally. I always look forward to your games. I'm so excited for your team. I, and I, you know, I'm glad that you let me ask that question about 11 and 0 because you look at your your schedule and as you're set up and the way your team's playing, who knows, it might just happen. A magical year, Rose Lavelle, Wisconsin Badgers, Paula Wilkins. Thanks so much for being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast, Paula. You are a rock star. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dean. Thank you for everything. Appreciate it. Paula Wilkins, fantastic. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap, Dean Linky. Love this part of the show when we get to meet two more members of our 30 Under 30 class. Up first, Tom Poole, who is the U11, U12 Boys Director of Coaching for the Colorado Rapids. As you know, a team dear to me as I was with the Rapids for their first three years of existence. And he's also the Director of Soccer Operations for the University of Denver, Jamie Franks, who's been on our program several times. Tom Poole works for Coach Franks, and Tom Poole joins me now. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for, for having me. Yeah, delighted to get to know you. Obviously, uh, we love the accent as well. So let's start with um, all you, okay? So talk about uh, where you grew up and when you came over to the United States, why you came over to the United States, and how you ended up in Colorado, if you can. Absolutely. So I... Uh... So I grew up in, in just outside of Birmingham, England. Um, played for Birmingham City Academy for for most of my uh, my younger life. Um, professional soccer was always the dream, and 
that probably was was a little bit unrealistic in terms of where I was as a player and um, ran into some some injuries and looked at my opportunities elsewhere. There were opportunities for me to go to university in England and um, a good friend of mine actually ended up going to a small school in North Carolina called Wingate University Um, and kind of when he was a when he was a freshman, I was still a senior back in uh, back in the UK. So we kept in in good contact, and um, he just said, "Hey Tom, you wanna you wanna come out here and play?" And it, it's literally as simple as that. I knew nothing in terms of Division One, Division Two, um, none of that. I literally said, "Yeah, I'm in." Booked the flight, took my SAT, and and that's kind of how I ended up in the states. That was uh, that was back in 2008. Uh, so I played for four years at Wingate, um, like I say, good Division Two school. They recently won a, a D2 national championship back in uh, in 2016. Um, after I finished playing, I hastened to add, but it was still good to, to see those guys have some success. Um, and and when I when I finished there, I was looking for opportunities to to continue growing and and wanted to to become a coach full time. So my my head coach at the time, Gary Hamill, um, was very good friends with. Tony McCall, who is the head coach at Regis University here in uh, in Denver, um, so they got me connected. Um, I became the graduate assistant at Regis and did my master's degree um, in sport leadership and human performance there. Um, and kind of once my my master's degree finished, I was looking for some for some full time work and wanted to be involved um, at a professional organisation. So that's kind of how I got connected with the club. And like I said, I've been here for a little over two two years now and it's been a, been a great experience so far. And we love Wingate. Uh, we had Coach Hamill on after they won that championship just a couple of years ago. That had to make you pretty proud as an alumnus, right? No, it was it was amazing. I actually went out to see the uh, the final four game and the uh and the championship game. So it was great to see some old faces and see the see the boys get the win. Yeah, they had a big parade and everything and ended up celebrating in their their gym. I love I still remember Coach Hamill talking about it uh, with the a big old smile, the way he can do it, right? What a great person, right? No, for sure. He's he's helped me a lot, probably more than I can I can ever repay him for. Like I say, I was kind of at this crossroads when professional soccer back in the UK didn't look like it was going to happen for me. He gave me an opportunity, and from there, that's that's kind of why I have the things I have now is because he took a chance on me and, and brought me over to the states, kind of twelve, eleven years ago, almost. So. Well, and Tom, there's worse places to be than Denver, Colorado. I mean, it is God's country out there, right? Talk about uh, just how much you've enjoyed, you know, not only, you know, working there, but living there. No, it's a, it's a beautiful city. Um, all of the major sports are here. Um, I love being outside. The weather's great. Get over 300 days of sunshine a year. We're kind of in the foothills. The mountains are an hour away. Um, kind of a, a very healthy state, health conscious state. So, yeah, my wife and I absolutely love love being here. And I like how you've got your hand in both youth and college. Uh, that's awesome, right? Because obviously, without great young players, you know, it doesn't help the future for U.S. soccer. And then the college game, obviously, United Soccer coaches has always paid a lot of attention to the college game. Talk about your decision to kind of dabble in both, Tom. Yeah, so when I, like I say, when I moved to Denver from, from North Carolina and I was the graduate assistant at the college level, I really enjoyed working with those, those kind of senior level players as you were. Um, 
this kind of 18 to 22, 23-year-old players was, was a lot of fun. I also love the, the innocence of working with youth players. Um, and, like, I, I'm at this point now where I, I have experience in both and I see the benefits of coaching in, in both environments. And, and I think for me it's, it's about how you can get around the best environments possible um, and be around the best people as possible to make you the best coach, director, educator, teacher, whatever you want to call it, as you can be. So that's the reason why, um, like I say, I was full-time at the club here, working primarily with um, with kind of the fan players. Uh do also work with the 16s and 17s as well. Um, but that's why I reached out to Jamie about the opportunity to, to be on the staff at the uh, at the University of Denver. Um, just because I say I think you can learn so much um, about being around successful programs like Jamie has at, at Denver. So um, enjoy both for sure. I think it challenges you in different ways, but that's kind of the reason why I think it just roots back to, to me wanting to be around better people and, and to be the best coach that I can be. Yeah, Jamie Frank has been a stalwart out there. He's done an amazing job with that program and always ranks really high. I, I know this season's been a little bit tougher, but, man, what a great coach he is. What's, what have you learned most from Coach Frank in your short time? Uh, wow, there's, there's a lot. And I think I think the big thing for uh, <clears throat> for that program is, is, is they're definitely young and they're up and coming and I think being that they don't have any seniors I think the future is, is definitely bright a big thing I, I love about Jamie um, is his intensity in the way he works and his attention to detail um, I think if you've ever had chance to to be around that program you know you know the attention to detail that goes in day to day you know the intensity in terms of the way they train the way they prepare um, he's, he's very very detail oriented has extremely high standards, and I think that just comes from the culture within the team. Um, it's kind of been refreshing to be a part of such a um, like a player-driven culture, and they kind of have extremely high standards for each other. And when players don't don't meet those standards, they've got leaders within the dressing room that are going to stand up and say, "This isn't good enough. It's got to be better." And I think him setting those standards and allowing players to kind of live those standards every day is. It's been really good for me to see. Let's talk a little bit about the Colorado Rapids and working with them. They one of the original ten franchises for Major League Soccer, been around since nineteen ninety six. They've had high moments like the second year making it all the way to the MLS Cup. And then a few years ago when they actually won the MLS Cup, they've had down moments where they haven't played super great. They've had big time players. A lot of those players have stayed out in the area, like Marcelo Balboa and Steve Trichu, and they're involved in coaching. It feels like uh, because of the Colorado Rabbits' placement for so long in MLS that there's a lot of great coaches that have come out of that system. Is that fair to say, Tom? Yeah, I think so. Um, although I'm full-time with the uh, with the youth club and Marcelo Balboa, um, coaches within our, within our MLS Development Academy, um, I kind of get to work with, with Marcelo on a, on a pretty regular basis. And like I say, his, his record in the game speaks for itself, and it's, it's good to be around those people that have have such a a great playing pedigree that can just bring you kind of small little nuances that maybe you don't think about as a coach. So it's definitely been good to uh, to be around those guys. I also worked with uh, with Steve Trichu. He was a volunteer assistant at Regis when I was a graduate assistant there. So I know I know Steve pretty well, and um, 
and I know he's had tons of success in the game as well. So, yeah, um, completely agree. I think just because it's been such a long-standing club within MLS, um, and as you say, it's a, it's a great part of the, uh, the country to live in. Um, I feel like there's a lot of very, very strong coaches that just flock here and, and stay here and are helping the game grow here. Knowing how much you've enjoyed being over in the States and uh successful time at Wingate and now in this dual role, one with University of Denver and one with Colorado Rapids, where do you see yourself in five to ten years, Tom Poole? What do you want to do? What's your end game? That's a good question. I think I think I would absolutely love to be a part of a uh, of a first team staff one day, um, whether that's in the US. Um I guess for me I just want to continue growing and and trying to be around better people that can that can help me be better. And ultimately, if, if my ceiling is is where it is right now, I'm I'm okay with that. I'm content with that. But like I say, I wanna I'm hungry to to keep growing and being around better people. So yeah, want to keep pushing, want to keep learning. Um, and like I say, the club and the uh, and university have definitely helped me do that. So two more questions for you as we spend time with Tom Poole, one of our accomplished 30 under 30 members and Tom this one's going to be tough for you because I feel like soccer is your life but if soccer wasn't your life what do you think you'd be doing Tom if, if you just weren't allowed to do anything for soccer you had to do something else what would it be <laughs> uh it's a good question I feel like soccer rules everything for me I uh good question um maybe teaching um my my undergraduate degree was um, with a teaching emphasis, and I enjoyed that. Um, teaching or playing golf. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like both those answers for sure. And you know, then with that, clearly you were smart enough to know the value of education, including coaching education, by being a member with United Soccer Coaches. What was uh, your reasoning for wanting to be a part of this thirty under thirty program, Tom? Uh, I had a friend that. Uh, um, that went through the program, um, and he was paired with a mentor that kind of helped him kind of develop connections um, and kind of helped him on his journey as well. So I, I've done a lot of the United Soccer Coaches courses. I've also been fortunate to do um, some UEFA courses as well. And um, like I say, I, I, I saw the benefit just because a friend of mine had been through the program, got placed with a really good mentor, and that's something that I thought, you know what, this is something that can – that can help me as well. Um, so like I say, I did the application and was fortunate enough to, to get selected. I was paired with uh, with Eric Oman. Um, I know a lot of you guys probably know Eric up in the uh, Pacific Northwest, and he's been he's been great for me as well. He's kind of opened a lot of doors and kind of connected me with a lot of people and just provided some some good insight to me. So he's a he's been a, a great resource to me as well. So definitely grateful for the uh, for the opportunity this program. Tom Poole, another great member of our 30 Under 30 class. Tom, great getting to know you a little bit better. Congrats on all you're doing. Love the fact that you're involved in so many different things, and your future is certainly bright, Tom Poole. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for uh, for the opportunity. All right. Up next, a member of the Stanford Women's Soccer Coaching staff is another member of our 30 Under 30. We'll meet her after this message. Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other 
at other things, and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that I found. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap, meeting two members of our 30 under 30 class. Like always, I want to thank Tom Poole, who is a youth coach with the Colorado Rapids and part of the University of Denver men's soccer program. As I told you, going to break, we would talk to a member of the Stanford women's soccer team, always in the run for a national championship. And I just said we'll talk to a coach because I was, wasn't totally sure how to say your last name because it's a tricky <laughs> one. Marguerite Awazata. Is that close? Yeah, you got it. I did. Okay, miracle. All right. Well, actually, Marguerite, I remember your name when you were a player because I followed Santa Clara pretty closely. You were an outstanding player. She played at Santa Clara, by the way, folks, not Stanford, from 2008 to 11. She split positions between midfield and center back, and that allowed her to take advantage of her ability to read the field. She graduated from Santa Clara in 2012 with a major in psychology and a minor in public health and Spanish. So let's start with that. And, by the way, she also is a coach with MVLA, where she's uh, helped them to three state cup titles and three regional title matches. So she's a great youth coach, Albertine Montoya, who we all know well she works with as well. So that's a great mentor for sure. But let's start with the notion of playing at Santa Clara and then coaching at Stanford. Those are pretty big rivals in the women's soccer arena, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, when I took the job at Stanford, I had quite a few of my teammates at Santa Clara that really gave me a hard time. Um and even our coach at Stanford, he kind of made a couple jokes just more along the lines of, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, uh, which is, you know, always in good humor. But it is a rivalry in some sense. I mean, I think we're really fortunate that two of the top college teams in the country reside within about 10 miles of each other. Um, there was a lot of kind of mixed feelings and emotions when I first started to work at Stanford going into these games against Santa Clara just because – Obviously, I kind of know how they operate, and I have so much respect for the program and the coaching staff. It's kind of um, incredible that the exact same coaching staff that I played for is still at Santa Clara. And so playing against them now is a lot of fun, just kind of reconnecting and having the opportunity to to talk with them before and after the game. But the game is always a heated game. Um, this year was a really kind of exciting match. It was in many ways closer than the scoreline. Um and just kind of like two very determined teams. And that's how it's been every single time we've played each other, whether I was a player at, or as a coach. Marguerite's in her fifth season now with Stanford, and all she's done is helped her team continue to make runs to college cups. Stanford were able to reach their eighth college cup in 11 seasons and fourth consecutive Pac-12 championship a year ago. And you sat and watched your second, yes, second Matt Herman Trophy winner back-to-back, Andy Sullivan, and then Katarina Macario, that's world-class, right, to watch not one but two back-to-back Mac Herman Trophy winners, right, Marguerite? Yeah. I mean, I feel so just incredibly blessed in some way to have had the opportunity to work with both of those players. Um, they're very, very different players. I think Andy is one that is just incredibly hardworking, um, just super, super detail-oriented in every single training she goes into, every single game she goes into, she's extremely task-oriented, um, whereas Kat is more of kind of, she brings out the Brazilian flair a little bit that she has and just really feels the game, kind of does whatever whatever's necessary to be successful. Um, but both of them are just incredible people, um, both on and off the field, and so it has been just a great opportunity to work with what I would consider some of the best players in the country. 
Well, and you've worked with some pretty big-time coaches, too, when you consider that you played under Coach Smith and now you work under Paul Ratcliffe. Those are two of the best in the business, right? Yeah, and again, I just feel so lucky to have had these two coaches as my mentors. Um, Jerry, Coach Smith, he he and I really got along. Um, I think I just really loved his tactical approach to the game. In my time at Santa Clara, we played multiple formations. We made many adjustments, whatever was needed in order to be successful, and it really opened my eyes to just how you can have such an influence on the game as a coach and from the sideline. Um, and so I learned so much from him in that sense. And then obviously with Paul, um, working on his staff specifically, I've learned just how to be a great manager. And I think he does an amazing job of recognizing, you know, how his assistants can contribute, kind of what our strengths are, letting us contribute in that way and kind of fostering our development as coaches. And so, again, like you said, I've had the opportunity to work with two great mentors, and I'm so incredibly grateful. Well, and also great leaders, particularly when you think about Jerry Smith and the leadership that he does at Santa Clara with former Santa Clara stars like Danielle Slayton and, of course, Brandy Chastain. I mean, he teaches you not just about being a good soccer player, but about being a leader, right? Yeah, um, and in my time at Santa Clara, I was really fortunate. He had a leadership group that I was able to be a part of. Um, and he really takes it seriously in terms of becoming a mentor of leaders and of future leaders. Um, he teaches things in terms of or regarding communication, just how to relate to teammates. I think he does a really good job of sticking to the values that he has and finding ways to um, kind of foster the importance of those values and making sure that his leaders are able to communicate them in a way that their teammates can get on board and just everyone kind of has a common goal. And so, yeah, I think Jerry does an excellent job of of um, being an example of leadership and also helping leaders on his team grow. Let's get to know you a little bit better. We're here with Marguerite Alzata, spelled A-O-Z-A-S-A. That's right. There's more vowels and consonants in her <laughs> last name. And we joked, uh, you, you said Japanese descent. Just talk about uh, your early years, where you grew up, how big your family is, and then how you ended up at Santa Clara. Yeah, so... Um, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, my dad actually went to the same high school I did and kind of all of that. Um, his, his side is the Japanese side, so I'm half Japanese. My mom is of European descent. Um, and so I grew up, and coincidentally, I had no ambition of playing soccer up until I was about 9 or 10 years old. Um, I have two siblings, an older brother and a younger sister. And I was one of those kids that always wanted to do what my older brother did. And unfortunately, or fortunately, um, my brother played soccer for one year, and he absolutely hated it. And so I was so determined to never play soccer um, up until, I think, in third or fourth grade when all of my friends decided to play. And my parents are both working parents, and so my mom kind of told me, like, well, that's your carpool, so you're going to have to try to play soccer because there's no other way for you to get home. And so I ended up playing just AYSO for a year. Um, and then after that, my friends had been playing for a few years, and they all decided to try out for, like, the local cl club team. And, again, my mom was like, yeah, sorry, honey, but you're going to have to do it because there's no other way to get you home. And so I tried out with all my friends, but it was really just a way, like, a child care of some sorts. Um, and I ended up loving it. And I give so much credit to the coach that I had, Albertine Montoya. Um, he was just incredible and really fostered this passion that I had for competitive sports. Um, and I think it was kind of by coincidence that it ended up being soccer. But like I said, 
it was really the environment that he created that allowed me to kind of fall in love with the game and, and go from there. Um, I played locally for my club, which is MBLA, Mountain View Los Altos Soccer Club, which is the same club that I coach for now. Albertine was my coach, and now he's my DOC, so it's actually kind of funny. It really has come full circle. Um, and we had a lot of success as a team. Uh, I think like 17 of the 18 players on my team went and played D1 soccer somewhere. We had three or four national team kids, which really, again, goes all credit to Albertine because we weren't the most talented team necessarily. And then thankfully, kind of through that and through the success of my club team, I um, found my way to Santa Clara. And I'm so thankful because I had an amazing experience at Santa Clara. I feel like I really grew as a player, really grew as a person, kind of learned how to be a leader. And more than anything else, I think Jerry really helped foster kind of the inclination I had towards coaching. And I was always a player that was not successful necessarily due to my athleticism or anything like that. It was more so how I saw the game and um, really how I kind of directed teammates on the field. And so the step to coaching was not a huge one. And, you know, both Jerry and Albertine really helped me kind of bridge that gap and make that transition from player to coach. So I am so thankful just to both of them for helping me do that and kind of helping me get to where I am today. Yeah, you indeed are uh, working with power players, all three of them, (laughs) you know, Coach Smith, Coach uh, Albertine Montoya and Coach Radcliffe are superstars for sure. And it's kind of interesting when you look at uh, where we are today in the women's game and even the visibility to see all these Santa Clara stars be in the broadcast booth and Julie Fowley be in the broadcast booth. It, it's kind of wild how big an impact on the women's game at the highest level both Santa Clara and Stanford have made, right? Yeah, and that's, again, why I'm just so thankful Um just to be part of two programs that I think really take seriously their role in the women's game on a bigger level. Um, I think Jerry, you know, he really encourages his players to give back to the game. That's one of the things that his program takes very seriously. Um, and Paul's the same way. You know, I think both of them understand that women's soccer is still a growing sport and that they have a responsibility to help it grow and help it continue to develop. So, um, that's something they instill in their players, whether it's going to be through broadcasting, whether it's going to be through coaching, whether it's going to be through playing at the next level and just becoming kind of, um, you know, representation of the women's sport. I think it's really, it's really been great that both of these programs, you know, understand the responsibility they have to continue to grow the game and, like you said, give it visibility. As you continue to grow in the game, where do you see yourself in five to ten years? A familiar question I seem to ask all of the thirty under 30 members. This is something I go back and forth with all the time. Um, obviously, I want to continue in the game. I think ultimately I would love to be a head coach at the college level. Um, that is something that I've kind of been continuing to work towards, just want to continue developing, get my licensing done, kind of do all those things that – I feel like they're going to prepare me to be a head coach. Um, And then after that, it's just, you know, kind of figuring out what the next best step will be and kind of what that next opportunity looks like. Um, But like you've mentioned, I've had the luxury of being mentored by, I think, three incredible coaches. And, you know, all three of them continue to give me guidance every single day. And so, um, you know, I know with their help, when that opportunity comes along, I think I'll be ready. And then i got to just go and and win. (laughs) And, Marguerite, what was your push to want to be a part of this 30 under 30 class? I was just really intrigued by the idea of kind of a bigger organization, organization, sorry, 
kind of guiding and helping and mentoring a younger group of coaches. I feel like I am kind of right at the forefront of a generation of coaches that has seen coaching as a true profession from the beginning. I've been so lucky that I've never really had another career, and this is something that I dedicated myself to as soon as I graduated from college. Um, and I was just so intrigued and so appreciative of kind of a grander organization kind of investing in younger coaches. Um, and so that was the real push, just, you know, kind of continue to surround myself with people that are just as ambitious as I am or just as motivated to continue to develop. Um, and I'm so glad because that's really what it was for me. And so far, the um, this past three thirty under 30 has connected me with some great younger coaches um, that have taken their careers very seriously and kind of dedicated themselves to becoming a better coach and then also just kind of getting back to the game. We talked a lot about the coaches that have influenced you. From where you sit now, having seen the U.S. women win another World Cup, see the NWSL continue to thrive with just fantastic crowds all over the place, and not just great crowds, but incredible performances. The level of play is phenomenal. Is there a player on the U.S. women's team or in NWSL that you really it's kind of like can't miss the way like maybe Michael Jordan was when I was younger for basketball. Is is there a player out there like that that you love seeing play all the time? There's a few that I think I really enjoy playing. Right now I feel like I'm a little biased because a lot of the ones that I I really highlight are the ones that I have coached. Um, But I already mentioned her today, but Andy Sullivan to me is just an incredible player. She understands the game. She's gritty. She's hardworking. Um, She's a talented player, don't get me wrong, but that's not what sets her what sets her apart. It's her leadership, I think. So, for instance, this year she was the captain of the Washington Spirit, which, I mean, she's 23, 24 years old. I think that's a pretty big responsibility, and she handled it in stride. Um, so she's one that I think will be up and coming in the next uh, couple cycles with the national team. Um, and then on the national team, I mean, I'm just very – I've always loved Megan Rapinoe. I know this might kind of be towards the end of her career, but I just have so much respect for her, um, both on and off the field, kind of what she's done with her platform, and then also just the type of player she is. I love how, you know, technical she is, how creative she is, how she's found ways to battle back to injuries and just never really let that hold her back. And so those are the players that I always um, I try to keep an eye on and the ones that I just really enjoy watching play. Finally, Marguerite, uh, tell me one thing about you that has nothing to do with soccer that people find interesting. Maybe it's a hobby or something about your family or maybe, you know, somewhere else you could go if you ever got out of soccer. What would that uh, little tidbit be? Oh, (laughs) so um, Coach Paul, he always makes fun of me for this because he always asks me, what would you do if you didn't play soccer? And 100% I would run a dog rescue. (laughs) <laughs> it has nothing to do with soccer, but I have yeah. two dogs, and I'm completely obsessed with them. And whenever we're out walking and I see a stray dog, I always try to rescue it. Um, and so far, I've rescued two and brought them over to some shelters. So that would be my, you know, in my next life, I would love to run a dog rescue, or maybe when I retire from coaching. <laughs> I love that. What a great answer. That just kind of shows the, the enormity <laughs> of your heart as well. So well done. All right, Marguerite. Well, here's what we're going to do to end. We're going to have you say your name really clearly just to make sure uh, we get it right. So, once again, we're here with... Marguerite, I was also. There it is, folks. Right there is how you really say it. 
and she's a superstar, great player, now a great coach and part of our 30 under 30 class. Marguerite, thanks so much for spending time with us. I did enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you. I want to thank Marguerite and all of our guests. I also want to thank Michael Knipper, Sean Chevro, and the great folks at United Soccer Coaches. I'm Dean Linke. See you same time, same channel next week for another edition of our United Soccer Coaches podcast.